1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this little letter, this one of Paul's first letters that he wrote um, to new believers, young church. He'd only been with them three weeks and uh, he'd had to leave them. And so this was a chance for him then to, to try and disciple them from a distance. And um, what you've got going on throughout this letter, as I've tried to indicate throughout, is Paul trying to help them see who they were in Christ. He's always wanting to do that first and then saying, actually, how do you live it out? How do you maneuver yourselves in the world? He becomes quite explicit at this point about what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus. So chapter four. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So it's kind of intriguing that he's there with them three weeks and he's reminding them, these are the big things I said when I was with you. Okay, you're in a a, a new church plant for three weeks. What do you want to tell them? It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins as we told you and we warned you before. For God didn't call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction doesn't reject a human being, but God the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, dear friends, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you. I've often thought that little bit, you know you get these fridge magnets with little bits of the Bible. Mind your own business. You should just be on a fridge magnet and stuff. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. I don't think these three areas of basic teaching, and, and, and I just want to reiterate, for Paul, this is basic teaching. Sex, relationships, and work. I don't think it's an accident. I'm not even sure it's because for the Thessalonians, these were the three biggest problems they had. I think that what Paul is doing here, he is taking you back to the big story, to the creation story, to the big story of what God's doing in and through us. What is the big story? Well, you know it really well, but let me just remind you. The big story is that you and I were created in God's image. And God created all things, but he created humans. He created us, and he looked at us, and he said, it's very good. This complex people, this complex humanity, we are brilliant. God created us, and it was very good. And in the early days of humanity, we lived pleasing God. We lived in relation with our creator and we pleased him. 
And in fact, Paul begins, doesn't he? It's um, in verse 1, we instructed you, how do you live in order to please God? How do you get back that relationship? It's there, it was there in the beginning. But everything was damaged. We know that the whole of creation was fractured. Independence, this desire to live apart from God. The temptation came. Take from the only part of creation that God said don't take from. Everything else, you can have everything else, but there's one aspect of creation. Just don't take that. And of course, in the same way as you and me, when we see the little sign on the grass saying, do not walk on the grass. (laughs) I'm 50 years old and I still want to. Or, how many of you do this? Wet paint. (laughs) Wet paint. And you just touch it, just see. Oh, yeah, it (laughs) does. It's, it's something inherent in us that almost you're told not to, and it's like, I wonder if I can. And everything was damaged, but there was very specific damage that was done. The first thing that was damaged was sex was damaged. What, what does, you know, there's, there's a payment for this independence. And what's the payment that Eve has over a life. It's that your desire will be for him and he will rule over you. That is not a good thing. And actually sex becomes changed from the brilliance of the reason it was created in the first place to something else, to something for yourself. When Paul's writing through the New Testament particularly, he's writing to a culture that where sex it's a very highly sexualized culture. And what he's always saying to them is, you've got to live differently because in the wider culture, sex is what's in it for yourself. But actually, sex is not about that. It was damaged in the fall. The second thing that was damaged in the fall were relationships. You know, you have the initial relationship, which is the damage between Adam and Eve. They were created as co-creators of all creation. They were co-stewards, they were to work together. But actually, because of this fall, because of the independence, their relationship cracks. And it's interesting that their sons, Cain and Abel, were only sort of like two seconds into the whole of humanity, and we're starting to kill each other. And the next generation, it's about revenge. Because actually, what is damaged, our relationships are damaged. And the third area that's damaged is work. Adam, you will continue to work, but it will be hard. You will work by the sweat of your brow. It will be frustrating. It will not be the way it was designed to be. The three big aspects of life that we still struggle with were way back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And it's like, it almost describes, how did we end up in the situation we're in? Now, the purpose this morning is not to make you feel guilty, and nor is it to push a lot of base, sort of like emotive bases. But, you know, I think most of us in the room, well, all of us in the room, would be absolutely horrified 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if we'd have thought we're going to be in a situation where we're having 
so many thousands of women being brought into our country as part of a sex trade. 20 years ago, we wouldn't have thought that was possible. We thought of ourselves as sophisticated. We thought of ourselves as people who kind of have got a grip on this sort of stuff. 20 years ago, we would not have thought that our children would have been so at risk. We wouldn't have thought that so many people would want to use the internet simply for really perverted use. Why would you want to damage children sexually? 20 years ago, I think we thought we were a better society than that. But now, it's almost like we've been sort of put up really close, and we don't like who we are. Now, it can feel a world away from, from all of us, because, you know, we're, we're aware of it, but it's not our life. But it is the life in our city. It is the life in our city. And some of us know how, um, how possible it is to be really messed up by our, our sexual relationships in the past, how people have used us and then abused us, how people have used us and dumped us. Some of us know how it feels to be like two clicks away on the internet to find ourselves enslaved again in pornography. And it's kind of like, this is the story that the Bible says, this is the result of when we try and live independently of God. It's almost like the result of when God says, okay, go for it. There's a piece in, in Romans chapter 1 where, God's, uh, where Paul is speaking about the judgment of God against the society. Now, it's kind of interesting because when we think about how God judges society, we kind of think, and some of us would like to think, that what God would do is send thunderbolts and hit people. As long as it's not us. Do you know what I mean? Like, we want grace, but we want judgment for everybody else. And it, it, we kind of think that's how God would do it. And that's often the sort of the cartoon figure. And sometimes the way we get into it, like when bad things happen, that's the judgment of God. And Paul says in Romans 1, he says something really interesting. The judgment of God is this. When God says... You can do what you want. That's the most frightening judgment, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? If it, kind of, it'd be easy, wouldn't it, if thunderbolts were coming down and hitting obvious people, because you'd go, ooh, I need to be careful. But it don't work like that. The relationships that fracture between male and female is the story of the early part of the Bible where men and women don't see each other as co-laborers, as co-stewards of creation. But we want to put one another down. We want to strive for position. We don't look at each other in ways that are equal, but actually we are at war with one another. And not just male and female, but male and male and female and female. Why do we have so many problems in our relationships? And then thirdly, the work. Those of us... In employed work, why is work just so frustrating? And it is, and it's so frustrating. And I don't know about you, but often part of the, the reason work is really frustrating is if everybody else at work was like me, it'd be fine. 
Do you know what I mean? <laughs> but work is frustrating. So what's the hope? The big story of the Bible could be, if you really want to wrap it into something very, very, very short, it's a story of two trees and one cross. That initial tree, the tree that God said, don't eat of this tree. And became the symbol of everything that we pushed against. And there's a final tree. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation 22, you find in the last chapter, another tree. And this tree grows and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. It's like this, this big dream or vision that one day, actually, we will live at peace with one another. And it'd be a tree, the leaves that provide the healing. How do you get from one tree to the next tree? Well, it's the cross, isn't it? It's Jesus. The big story of Jesus is this. When Jesus is ministering, what is he doing? Once you were alienated from God, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's what the cross does. God reconciles you to himself. But more than that, it's not just that you're a forgiven sinner, not just that God has dealt with my past, but God wants to do a whole stack more. God is recreating humanity through Jesus. One of the, the passages that you, you know, if you read the Gospels, one of the things that you find regularly happening is that Jesus is meeting people whose lives have been ravaged by evil. They're called demon-possessed people. It's like their lives have just been torn apart. And Jesus casts out the stuff that's caused the, anxiety, the, the, the ravage and actually brings healing to them. But what happens is they're recreated, put back together again. One of the songs we sing, I think it's Praise is Rising, that um, th there's a line, he makes everything new. He puts our lives together and he, puts, he makes everything new. That's what Jesus was doing in his ministry. He's demonstrating his Lord over creation. So he walks on water. He creates bread when there's no bread, etc., etc. He renews relationships between people who have been so separated. And he defeats the powers of sin. Christ has done so much. And we live in the light of that. So now when we go to... Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm hoping that you can see what Paul's doing now. He's wanting to say, well, actually, because of Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, you're being called into a different relationship on the three major issues that came up in Genesis 1, 2, 3. So the first one Paul, Paul deals with is sex. Listen, it's God's will, you should be sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. Paul has this idea, and he doesn't use these words, but it's like you, someone else has used them, and I think it's a brilliant phrase. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, we're not angels, but we're not animals. 
We're not angels in as much as we have no sexual desire. Okay? You still have that sort of uh, desire, but you're not animals either, where you just have to give in to it. It's that there's something in the middle. The Spirit of God is at work in such a way that enables us to control those desires and bring them into holiness and an honorable way of life. Not only that, but Paul says, so that you won't take advantage of one another. It's kind of like Paul's got this vision of what local church should be like, where people are not hitting on each other, where you see each other not as objects, but actually you see each other as brothers and sisters that you're working together with. Secondly, about your love, your relationships. Now, Paul is really clearly quite impressed with the love that they have for one another. He says, you do love the brothers and sisters. We urge you, though, to do so more and more and. Verse 10. Just do it more and more. Now, that word love, you, some of you will know, Paul and the New Testament uses a word called agape. And it's a word that's a, a, a full word. It's a rich word. It's not just like, oh, I'm, I feel really fond of these people or they're lovely or I feel attracted to them. That's not that sort of word. The word agape is a really practical word. It's a word that gets its, sort of rolls its sleeves up and gets its hands dirty. It's a, it's a word that does stuff. If I was going to be challenging to myself and to you, this would be the way you challenge it. This is the way you know whether you love people. When did you last do stuff for people for whom you didn't need to do anything? When did you last do something for someone? for people for whom you didn't have to do anything. So not your, not your closest friends, not your family, but for the people who you don't actually have to do anything for. That's a demonstration of love. And then thirdly, he goes on and says, so make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. And um, for us, that's kind of like, that may not sound so surprising. Um, but for Paul, what he's doing, he's, he's sort of like um, subverting some of the cultural expectations because to work with your hands was not thought to be sort of like very honorable. Philosophers, they were honorable. Orators, they were honorable. People who thought for a living, they're honorable. But working with your hands. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Work with your hands. Do stuff. So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Work in such a way that the outsiders, the people who are not of faith, the people who don't belong to the community of faith, let them see what you're like. Later on, when Paul writes to uh, Timothy, and he's talking about how do you decide who are going to be leaders in a church, one of the things he says is they must have a really good reputation with outsiders. It's almost like take a reference up with people who are not Christians before you let those people lead you. And lastly, he says, work in such a way that you won't be dependent on anybody. One of the things that seems to be happening in, in Thessalonica, in a little church, is that some of them, and this will come back later, 
um, at the end of the, the end of the book. But it seems like some people were kind of like freeloading on other people. Some people were saying, well, I don't need to work because these people will look after me. And Paul says, have something to bring to the pot. Let's renegotiate this work contract. Paul looks at the world and the big story, and he says, it needs to change. The way we approach sex is not the same as the rest of our culture. I, I don't think of myself as particularly old-fashioned in many ways. I read The Guardian. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of social commentators at the moment saying, We've probably, we're probably reaping what we sowed. We probably are reaping what we sowed. And I think in days to come, it's going to be increasingly significant that the church as a whole actually can talk about sex sensibly without giving the impression it's just bad, but actually giving the understanding that, no, it's created and it's good, but actually we need to think carefully about what we do with it. For some of you, you're at a stage of life where that's even more of a significance than for others of us. The relationships... They'll continue, but actually you will feed the love that you have for one another, not by the emotion you feel for one another, but by the action you take to one another. It's not about emotion. It's about action. And work in such a way that outsiders who have no understanding of the faith would go, I don't get what they believe, but I can see what they do. And what they do is impressive. Final thing. Tom Wright, who writes books quicker than I can read them. <laughs> yeah, it's true. In one of his books, he wrote this. And it's a brilliant, brilliant quote, I think. It's a long quote, but this is what he writes. He's, he's suggesting about the way we're created and what we've settled for. He said, made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ all that belongs to the brokenness and the incompleteness of the present world. It's time, in the power of the Spirit, to take up our proper role, our fully human role, as agents, heralds, and stewards of the new day that's dawning. That, quite simply, is what it means to be a Christian. To follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which he's thrown open before us. It's time, in the power of the Spirit, to take up our proper role, our fully human role, as agents, heralds, and stewards of the new day that's dawning. All around us, there's people who will pull us down and want to make us settle for, for less than God's best. There are people, there's our own temptation that will want to pull us away from what God is offering. There's our own frustration with one another that will pull us away from living for the sake of others. There are difficult people at work. 
who will want you to make to, you to live for yourself. But actually, to be a Christian is to take up your role as an agent of the kingdom, as a herald, someone who announces the kingdom, and a steward, someone who cares for, someone who makes it possible of that new day that's dawning. That's what God's called us to. And that's why Paul wrote to the Thessalonians as he did. I think if he was writing to the church today, he might want to say the same stuff. Because the culture is so similar. We're going to pray together. Lord, I want to pray this morning that we might be people who follow you into our whole world as believers in Jesus who not just forgives us but actually makes all things new. Lord, I want to pray for those of us who struggle with temptation, sexual temptation. I pray for those who struggle to know where the boundaries lie. I pray for those who long to feel fulfilled but look for it in places that are not always great. Lord, may you rescue us from our own temptations. And Lord, in the place of brokenness, may you bring healing. May you make all things new, I pray. I pray as a church in the, in the, in the country, that Lord, we'd have something better to say about the way we treat one another. I pray, Lord, for those Christian organizations and the non-Christian ones who are working with women who've been trafficked across the globe. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give strength to them and give them hope and encouragement that they could make a difference. I pray for those trapped. Some people trapped because of their own actions. Some people trapped because of other people's actions. Lord Jesus, would you come and bring freedom to those who are enslaved? I pray, Lord, for the love that we might have for each other. I pray, Lord, that on the days when we just got to get up and keep it going again, Lord, that you give us the strength to do it. That it's not about our emotion, what we feel, but actually about our action, what we do. Lord, may we act in ways that are creative, that are loving, and that give generously to one another. Lord, will you help us to think about how we can give our time, how we give our attention, how we give of what we have. Lord, may we learn to love one another. And Lord, for those of us who tomorrow morning will get up and will go to work again, Lord, may we work in such a way that we will win the reputation, a good reputation with outsiders, that they might see something different about the way we live. Lord, the way we file stuff, the way we serve stuff, the way we make things, the way we respond to request. Lord, may we live for the sake of others. May we live better. Lord, thank you for the big story. Thank you that you did not leave creation in the mess, but you sent Jesus. Lord, to the cross we cling. Between the day now and the day when that second tree will be evident to all. 
Lord, in the, in the meantime, let's live for your glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.